0: Hello and welcome to the Sinobabble Chinese History Podcast. My name is Eddie and this is episode 3 of the 20th Century China series. In today's episode we'll be taking an in-depth look at the Xinhai Revolution of 1911 and the formation of the Republic of China. On October the 9th, 1911, an accidental explosion in a revolutionary base in Hubei province in central China triggered a revolution that would mark the end of China's imperial past and usher in its modern future. While the series of events that followed seem to indicate a straightforward revolution on the surface, recent scholarship on the topic shows that the exact nature, objective, outcome and legacy of the Republican movement is anything but uncontentious. In this episode we'll be discussing the build-up to the revolution and the events as they took place to understand who the main actors were and what objectives they had if any. Finally in the last part of this podcast we'll look at the different debates surrounding the truth about the Xinhai revolution including the idea that it wasn't actually a revolution at all. Before we get into the actual events that took place, I think we first need to understand the disparate groups that made up Chinese society at the beginning of the 20th century and how they each contributed to the restless atmosphere that eventually erupted into civil war. There's quite a lot to cover, but luckily we're kicking things off with a familiar face. Sun Yat-sen had become famous abroad since his almost kidnapping in London, which we discussed in the last episode he had capitalised on this by being as visible as possible in the press and appealing to foreign revolutionaries in Europe. As you may or may not know, there were quite a few revolutionary movements building up at this time in Europe. For example, the failed Russian Revolution of 1905 that would eventually become the October Revolution of 1917. But I think that's a subject for a different episode on a completely different podcast. After spending some time studying revolutionary movements in London, he returned to Japan via Canada to great acclaim, learning Japanese so as to strengthen his ties with his new allies. With Japan as his base of operation, Sun began reaching out to different groups, particularly overseas Chinese, for support in overthrowing the Qing, or at the very least setting up a republic with the current emperor as president. Though his many attempts at cooperating with other revolutionaries, such as Liang Qichao and Kung Youwei, Wei, fell far short of their goals, and his other fleeting stabs at revolutions all fell flat, between 1895 and 1911, Sun was able to build up an arsenal of support from prominent reformers, overseas Chinese, politicians in other countries such as Japan, and the international press. Support wavered from time to time, After a failed uprising in 1900, Sun struggled to piece his coalition back together, and he made no attempts at wooing the hundreds of millions of rural Chinese who could have boosted his campaigns. Sun was eventually able to bring disparate groups of literate Chinese together in time for the revolution. The Revolutionary Alliance, also known as the Tongmonhui, was formed in 1905 in Japan, a hodgepodge of different groups, including overseas students and random revolutionaries, with Sun as the nominal director. All but one province was represented amongst its ranks at the start, and together they vowed to drive out the Manchus, restore Chinese rule, establish a republic, and equalise land rights. Though some were hesitant to follow Sun, none could really deny his revolutionary credentials. He was known and respected by foreign politicians, he'd put in the most hours trying to bring down the Qing, he had a Western education and expertise, and he had the backing of some major contacts in the West, Japan, Hong Kong, and mainland China. The group represented a diverse range of opinions and ideologies, and the large, loose structure meant that complete unity was difficult, if not impossible, to achieve, and each group that joined the alliance retained something of its original character. But by 1911, Numbers of the revolutionary alliance had swelled from about 400 at the time of its founding to 10,000, in large part thanks to the huge numbers of Chinese students studying abroad that had been wooed to the revolutionary movement by Sun's charisma and passion. These students had also been brought onto the revolutionary side by the writings of Liang Qichao, who was also based in Japan at the time. If you remember from the last episode, Liang Qichao was one of those who had written the memorial to the throne in 1895, along with his teacher Kang Youwei, and whose 100 days reform movement had been quickly shut down by the Empress Dowager Cixi, so he had fled to Japan, and he was in Japan at the same time as Sun. It was Liang who primarily introduced Japanese and Western writings to Chinese audiences abroad through his newspaper and publications spurring on a sense of national pride that respected the past while simultaneously invoking the need for change and modernity. It also encouraged Chinese students abroad to form their own national societies such as the Youth Society and start up their own papers such as The Voice of China and Flag of China. Many of them were enamoured of the French and American revolutions and by the 19th century thinkers such as Rousseau and Herbert Spencer. Over time, their writing took on a more anti-Manchu sentiment, as blaming China's woes on the foreign dynasty proved to be a more powerful uniting factor for the disparate groups of Chinese than anti-imperialism. Between 1901 and 1905, the number of students studying in Japan grew from 100 to 8,000, a not inconsequential body of potential revolutionaries. However, among themselves, they remained disorganized and leaderless, despite keeping abreast of the latest developments in China, and even attempting some abortive uprisings and assassinations themselves. The students were not alone in their zeal and determination for reform, however. Despite the fact that the most prominent revolutionaries that we speak of today when we speak of the Xinhai Revolution were not actually in China, in both rural and urban China, discontent and unrest were fermenting to boiling point. And so it is important that we look at how these different groups on the mainland were feeling at the time, especially when it comes to looking at some of the arguments surrounding the Xinhai revolution, which we'll discuss later. China's old gentry and new businessmen formed an unlikely alliance, as both groups were keen to break free of central government control and allow China to modernise in order to compete with and hold back the tide of foreign commerce. This meant a rise in the number of self-interested individuals with enough capital to start their own business, a stark contrast to the sense of public duty and loyalty to the regime that had previously characterised the gentry class. This was especially true after the abolition of the civil service examination in 1906, which left many educated elite questioning exactly how their futures and the futures of their children would pan out if the road to success was no longer clearly laid out before them. The government also did not help its cause by being continually suspicious of new enterprises, frustrating modernisation attempts due to their disapproval of practices such as hiring women, which they considered salacious, or opening mines and forestries, which they claimed damaged the feng shui of the natural environment. Finally, gentry, landlords and businessmen were outraged at the continual selling of land and development projects, such as railway construction, to foreign regimes in return for loans. This included the seizure of land that had already been privatised which led to the development of a rights recovery movement to give projects and land back to local firms whilst also demonising the Qing for selling out to their foreign backers. We mentioned in one of the previous episodes that the Qing had set up provincial assemblies as part of a package called the New Policies which they had begun to introduce in 1901. The assemblies were set up in 1908 but lacked national representation and were essentially supposed to function as talk shops rather than active agents of change. Elected and comprised of the same gentry who had previously sought access to power through the now-abolished civil service exams, many of them were already degree holders and wanted reform to the extent that their interests would be served. They opposed centralization, high taxes and levies by petitioning the government to enact changes to political reform quicker. The government responded by forming an administration staffed mainly with Manchu noblemen and forcing prominent members of the reformist group to step down, such as the General Yuan Shikai. The revolution may well have kicked off in Sichuan had matters continued to escalate as they did. There, in 1911, assemblymen who formed part of the rights recovery movement, as well as shareholders in the Sichuan Railway Company, policemen more loyal to the province than the government, and local militiamen met to protest the handing over of yet more railway projects to foreign companies, as well as to protest the corruption of the local governor. Some leaders of this group were arrested, and a group of demonstrators who rallied to protest the arresting of these leaders were fired upon by soldiers loyal to the Qing. A struggle erupted, and in the end the governor released the prisoners, and the assemblymen were able to take control of the province. However, as it turned out, this group would have to bide their time until the real revolution began. At the same time, in the countryside, the ban on opium hit farmers who relied on the crop for their livelihoods, especially as a drop in the price of land and a rise in inflation meant that the price of living was increasing steadily. Rural revolts raged against a range of issues, including a rise in taxes the deterioration of public works and infrastructure leading to an increase in the frequency and severity of natural disasters, as well as the growing influence of foreigners and reformers who were branded as a single group by the same people who felt that their railways were a threat to Chinese civilization. In the cities, the poor did not fare much better. Poor working conditions and high taxes led to frequent strikes and the breaking of machinery as wages remained stagnant in the first decade of the 20th century. The new army formed by the Qing government also ironically became its biggest threat. By far the most well-equipped part of the army, this contingent of around 175,000 men had been trained either in China's new military schools, which taught modern warfare, science and foreign languages, or with students returning from places such as Japan, where they had been exposed to the ideas of China's most prominent revolutionaries. Impressed with the pace of change abroad, These groups often discussed political issues and were not so much disloyal to the Qing as loyal to those commanding them directly. By 1911, 70% of the men in new army units belonged to some form of revolutionary group. This would become an important point when the incident in Wuhan finally took place. Despite the disparate nature of the revolutionary groups and their frequent failures, anti-Manchu sentiment continued to spread in part due to the creation of revolutionary martyrs who had died in abortive attempts at rebellion. One such example was Chu Jin, a female revolutionary who had fled to Japan to escape an arranged marriage, returning to China in 1906 to set up a revolutionary girls academy. She wore men's clothes and campaigned fiercely for women's rights to education and financial independence. Focusing on physical education and military drills, she stored up enough ammunition and arms to plan an uprising in July of 1907. The plan was botched, however, and several co-conspirators died fighting or were captured and executed by Qing forces, while some were let off. Chiu Jin herself was beheaded at the age of 31, and poetry attributed to her, published posthumously, became famous across China as a rallying cry to rebellion. Even without martyrs to hold up as symbols of the revolutionary cause, however, it was clear that by 1911, pretty much everyone was sick of the state of China and the actions of the imperial government, and even those who did not actively agitate for change certainly welcomed it. This is what allowed a seemingly small explosion that occurred in Wuhan, Hubei province, in October of 1911 to ripple throughout the entire country. Wuhan was a tri-city area comprised of Wuchang, Hankou, the Russian concession, and Hanyang. It was home to many radical cells, some with links to the Revolutionary Alliance, as well as many of the aggrieved groups we mentioned, such as industrial workers and new army soldiers, which some revolutionaries had successfully managed to infiltrate. A group of revolutionaries were making bombs at their meeting house in Hankou on October 9th, when one bomb accidentally exploded. When the Russian authorities came to investigate, they discovered a membership list of soldiers and civilians who had joined the ranks of revolutionaries. They alerted the Qing authorities, who raided the group's headquarters, executing three revolutionaries and arresting 32 members. The Qing were now fully aware of the scale and scope of the revolutionaries' cause, and the rebels realised that the do-or-die moment had finally arrived. On October 10th, a battalion from Wuchang seized the ammunition depot and by the end of that day had been joined by several other regiments and units from within and outside the city. The Qing failed to face down the 3,600 strong mutineers and instead the governor-general fled the city, the new army units capturing the armoury. The second city, Hangyan, rallied the next day with the revolutionaries staging a successful coup And the third city, Hankou, joined the cause on the 12th of October. With Wuhan securely under the control of the rebels, they now needed to find a prominent figure to act as leader of the revolution. All the planning and plotting on the part of the Revolutionary Alliance went right out the window. Ironically, the actual sequence of events that took place did not vary too much from those planned by Sun's alliance. They had planned that an armed uprising led by local secret societies on the mainland would take place in one area and then slowly spread out, liberating the country from Qing control. Martial law would then be instated, at which point the process of setting up a republic with socialist principles would be undertaken. Already things were going off track, however, as with Sun fundraising in the US, the rebels were forced to appoint a reluctant commander, Li Yuanhong, to become figurehead at gunpoint. On paper, Li wasn't a bad choice. He was a Han Chinese for a start. He was popular with the troops, as well as being a respected member of the gentry elite, and he spoke English, which helped keep foreigners in the area reassured. But very soon after, chaos erupted. The Qing launched a counter-attack on Wuhan, which swiftly failed officials choosing to abandon the city rather than stay to deal with the outbreaks of looting and the increasing number of massacres of Manchus in cities such as Xi'an. Local leaders and secret society members stepped in, and more and more provinces joined the fray. The provinces of Shanxi, Yunnan, Shanxi and Jiangxi all either had large-scale mutinies or declared independence from the Qing altogether. In the last years of the Qing regime, suspicions surrounding railways had abated enough to allow the completion of several lines, including one from Beijing to Wuhan. As we mentioned above, the rights recovery movement was particularly focused on recovering projects and land that had been sold to foreign powers to develop China's railway infrastructure. It was fitting then that the railway system would become so important in the final battle for control of China's strategic locations. The Qing had been left with no choice but to call in formerly disgraced commander Yuan Shikai to come to their rescue. The Qing sent Yuan and his loyal troops on a train down from Beijing to try and quell the rebellion in Wuhan. Meanwhile, the rebels were able to use a connecting route via Shanxi province to cut off supply lines to the Qing troops. In the end, Yuan actually won the battle but conceded the war to Li Yuanhong, having seen the way the tide was really turning. Several more provinces declared independence, including Sichuan, which had been in the throes of chaos since the uprisings had arisen over the rights recovery movement. On November 14th, Yuan took the train back to Beijing to enter into negotiations with the Qing government. Despite attempts to move the country towards a constitutional monarchy, much like Kang Youwei had dreamed of merely a decade before, the Qing continued to suffer heavy losses as more and more provinces were united in anti-Qing sentiment, and public support rallied behind the Revolutionary Alliance. The Qing got no support from foreign governments either, as Sun Yat-sen had got to London just in time to persuade the British government not to interfere. When the old capital of Nanjing fell to rebels, the Qing knew that it had lost all trace of symbolic power. While they negotiated a constitutional monarchy with Yuan as the new regent and prime minister, Sun Yat-sen arrived back in China on Christmas of 1911. After heated words were exchanged, the leaders of 17 provincial assemblies agreed that Sun Yat sen should be made president of China. On January 1st, 1912, he was sworn in as the leader of the Republic of China. Two opposing forces now stood facing one another, although they were by no means equal in their strength. In a telegram sent on the same day as his inauguration, Sun actually wrote to Yuan Shikai offering him the presidency as he knew that his own military forces wouldn't stack up in a battle against Yuan. Emboldened, Yuan went to the Forbidden City to demand the abdication of the emperor, while revolutionaries simultaneously made attempts on his life. Tensions mounted as several assassination attempts were made on the lives of Manchu noblemen, many of whom fled to safety in Manchuria, leaving the boy emperor and the empress dowager alone to negotiate for their lives with Yuan Shikai. In an agreement that guaranteed the right to live in the Forbidden City on a stipend of $4 million a year, the last emperor of China, Puyi, abdicated on February 12, 1912, at the age of six. The Qing government had handed over the reins to Yuan to act as president of a new republic, thus ending China's 2,000-year-old imperial history. So that's it for the storytelling part of this episode. That's really all that happened in the Xinhai Revolution. It was over pretty quickly and I think as you can guess it was probably because tensions within China had mounted to a point that the Qing was pretty much ready to fall. So what I want to do for the next 15 minutes or so is to discuss some of the different interpretations of the revolution that emerged in China and internationally in the decades that followed the revolution. In my opinion, when you tell the story of the revolution like I did above, like an actual story, it's a little bit difficult to know what to make of it. On the surface, an argument could be made that it was the revolutionaries who carried the day. After all, they had been playing such a huge role behind the scenes, they'd done all the plotting and the scheming and the attempts at uprisings and had performed all the aborted revolutions. They were the ones who had put in the time and they literally set off the bomb that started the whole thing. So it was only right in the end that they tried to push their leading man, Sun Yat-sen, to take the spotlight. On the other hand, when you look at the story as a whole, with all the other players who were involved, it kind of seems like the revolutionaries don't really step in until the last minute. And they leave all the heavy lifting to the armies and the local gentry. And, you know, they were on the side of the revolutionaries in that they were anti-Qing, but they didn't really form part of the Tong Hui team. It seems more plausible that local tensions had just frayed to the point where revolutionaries were able to jump on the bandwagon when the scales were already tipped in their favour. Or did the whole thing just collapse in on itself? Was there a revolution at all? Had the Qing state as a whole just decayed down to the point where the slightest breeze would bring the whole system tumbling down? I think what's best is to take a look at some of the different scholarly schools of interpretation that emerged soon after and also quite a while after the revolution had taken place. In Peter Zarrow's book, China in War and Revolution, he outlines three different interpretations of the Xinhai revolution. A heroic interpretation that claims that the revolutionaries were the leaders of the revolution and an idea that's still supported by the republican government of Taiwan to this day. The Marxist interpretation, which claims that China's new bourgeoisie actually led the revolution and is, of course, supported by the Chinese Communist Party. And a final interpretation that claims that the revolution was not a revolution at all, but merely the new gentry taking advantage of a decaying system, which has mainly been put forward by Western historians. The first interpretation emphasises the role played by individuals, particularly the revolutionary leaders such as Sun Yat-sen. It focuses on the revolutionary leaders in the provinces that ceded from the government in the immediate aftermath of the Wuchang uprising and the sacrifices and actions of those people who struggled over the six months or so it took for Sun to become president. The story is put on hold as Yuan Shikai takes over the presidency and essentially becomes a dictator, which we're going to discuss next week. But is then started up again when the revolutionaries regroup under the banner of Sun Yat-sen's Nationalist Party in the 1920s. If I'm honest, I think this is probably giving the revolutionaries a bit too much credit. If you remember, up to this point, every revolution they had ever planned failed without exception. And they didn't even start this one, really, unless, again, you go back to the accidental bomb explosion, in which case they accidentally started an entire revolution. It's a little bit too easy for them to take the credit, although I do understand why Taiwan's government, which is actually formed from the remnants of Sun's Nationalist Party that fled the mainland in 1949, would be for this interpretation. Unfortunately, this analysis overlooks all the other major social forces that were in motion in China at the time. The second Marxist interpretation actually does a bit of a better job of putting the revolution into the wider social context. This version of events paints the groups that acted in the revolution as members of China's emerging bourgeoisie, comprised of merchants, factory owners, bankers as well as professionals such as teachers and doctors who had been able to come up as a result of the capitalist tendencies of china that had been developing over the last few centuries however they were not able to come into the fore completely as china was still in a semi-feudal semi-colonial state Uh, that terminology is going to come up a lot in future episodes by the way so you might want to make a mental note of it China's traditional landed gentry stifled the ambitions of the bourgeoisie, while the foreign powers had carved up small chunks of China's territory, which they ruled indirectly, severely weakening the power of the Chinese government, hence semi-feudal, semi-colonial. The bourgeois classes were able to overthrow the Qing government, but were not able to fully complete the revolution, as they were internally divided and did not yet have their full strength. The 1911 revolution, therefore, was merely the first stage of the later 1949 revolution, which saw the full transformation of China and the completion of the aims of 1911. As neat an analysis as this is, and very teleological, the Marxist interpretation falls into the same trap as the first analysis by equating Sun and his revolutionaries as the good bourgeoisie and Yuan Shikai as the evil landlord classes. It also has some other pitfalls. Firstly, it overlooks the fact that class identity was not so stable in the early 1900s as it may appear. Many of the old gentry were also the new bourgeoisie, as they were able to use their prestige and position in the traditional system to buy land and start commercial enterprises. Many officials also supported the growing urban business classes, who were not by any means numerous, or were members of that class themselves, meaning that they owned both land and capitalist ventures. Much like the first analysis, the wish to link 1911 to their own revolution in 1949 conveniently obscures some of the historical facts surrounding society and social politics at the time. The third school that Zarrow discusses dismisses the first two entirely. The revolution was not some grand scheme by the revolutionaries or the bourgeoisie to bring down the corrupt Qing and establish a modern nation. Instead, it was brought about by an increasing demand of China's gentry for more local autonomy and a stronger form of government in the shape of a constitutional monarchy that would be able to resist foreign imperialism. The majority of them still supported the traditional Chinese structures. They had both traditional and western educations, they were more open-minded, and they wanted the ability to put into place local reforms that would modernise the country whilst allowing them to profit. The reformist elite wanted to modernise, but they didn't want a revolution. This view is possibly a bit more convincing, but it tends to emphasise the elite desire for continuity, and it makes them appear blind to social forces that were already beyond their control. It probably wasn't the case that these elites, with all their knowledge of the wider world and their investment in global economics, had managed to completely overlook the pace of change and the fact that 1911 was not just another part of China's dynastic cycle. Apart from these more cut and dry analyses, there's a more sort of melancholic suggestion that the Qing would have been able to reform and survive, and in fact, the reforms already put into place, given a chance, would have seen China transformed into a modern state without a revolution. In this light, some have criticised the revolution as unnecessary, especially considering the relative mess China was left in in the following 30 or so years after 1912. The people were not ready for a revolution, at least not when it actually occurred in 1911. And some controversial scholars even argue that the revolution achieved nothing, that people today have no more rights or power in China than they did at the beginning of the 20th century, and that in fact they may have even less interest in politics than people did in 1911. In the sceptical view, the 1911 revolution was either a mistake or just not that big of a deal, really. What all these interpretations and judgments show is that a huge problem for the 1911 revolution is that it was a precursor to a failed regime, but then was adopted as a revolutionary precursor to two opposing regimes that continue to this day. Had the leaders of, say, the PRC rejected the revolutionary legacy of 1911 as some sort of feudal bourgeois entrapment and then declared 1949 as the true start of new China, perhaps interpretation would be a bit more straightforward or at least less politically fraught. Unfortunately, this could never be possible. In the end, the Xinhai Revolution wasn't just a clever ploy of China's gentry tricking the rest of the country into thinking that things had changed whilst really trying to keep the old system in place. By the time 1911 rolled around, everyone knew what was coming and it was just really a question of when and how change would occur. So China's new regimes and the rest of the world really had no choice but to make it mean something. Even if that something doesn't necessarily line up exactly, with what those regimes were trying to achieve this highlights the fact that the revolution was not just the period of political change from 1911 to 1912 but encompassed the entire first decade of the 20th century and all the social changes that were taking place China's clashes with the West that we covered in the first two episodes had not only opened people's eyes up to China's weaknesses, but had shown them the possibilities for a new economic, political and social way of life that could help revolutionise China's standards of living and improve her standing in the world. I think all of these interpretations contribute something important to our understanding of the 1911 revolution, In the period 1900 to 1910, localities had gradually been taking more responsibilities for their reform and wanting more independence from Beijing. These aims happened to coincide with the aims of the revolutionaries and businessmen who were all coming together in a particular mode of thought at the same time. Maybe they weren't all on the same page by the time the bomb went off in 1911, but they were all moving in the same direction, with or without the Qing so i'd really be interested to know what you guys think and what your interpretation of the series of events was which interpretation do you think is the most plausible you can go to sinobabble.com to leave a comment or you can visit my youtube page just search for the sinobabble podcast to leave a comment under the latest upload In the next episode, we'll be discussing the events that transpired directly after the revolution, how the republic broke down, and how paranoia over the possible destruction of China allowed new philosophical and intellectual trends to infiltrate China, sweeping her inexorably down the path towards social transformation. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode.